What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 110 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to, don't be a jerk. Don't really answer your question first. I'm not answering your question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talking about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. You can always reach us by emailing thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we will talk about what we've been eating and then lock ourselves inside of an antique diving bell gifted to us by the ghost of Donald Watson in order to lower ourselves into the unexplored depths of the mailbag, where we will answer listener questions, comments, and concerns. Like a pro, <laughs> didn't, he didn't even trip you up one bit. <laughs> you, you tried to with that run-on sentence, but couldn't get me. Yeah, so... Paul. Yes, Andy. Before before we get into our regularly scheduled programming, we have some some business to take care of. Mm-hmm. I think the very first thing we should probably do is announce our winners from our little ongoing contest that we have. Yeah. You feel good about that? Let's do that. So for those that are unaware of this contest, this is an ongoing contest. Every mailbag episode, which means every 10 episodes, we announce three winners for this contest. The winners get a Beard Vegans button and sticker mailed to them for free. And the way that you enter is simply just by leaving us an iTunes review. That's something that helps us, and it helps us help you potentially win a button or sticker or both. So we just choose at random. We use a random number generator based on the number of reviews we have, and and that's how we do it. So first winner is ShellBell80. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Next winner, I think I'm pronouncing this correctly, Vegan Pandulce. That's what I, that's how I was gonna say it. Yeah, and and in in their review from December of 2015. So, yeah, if you write a review, you're entered for life until you win. You are back in the running to win every single time we do an episode. You're in perpetuity. And in this review from 2017, they wrote that they loved the intro music, and I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, then they've stopped listening now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because now when I, if I go back to listen to an old episode to find a sound clip or something, the, the old intro music seems so out of place. I've gotten so used to our new intro song. I love yeah. it dearly. Me too. Me too. Thanks, Alex. Yes. So that was Vegan Pandolce. And then the final winner is Morgan Sid, who said that they can listen to Paul read all day, which I think is the second person that said they love your reading voice. <laughs> Those are my favorite kind of reviews. <laughs> so Shellbell80, Vegan Pandolce, and Morgan Sid, if you are still listening to our show, send us an email to beardedvegans at gmail.com. And let us know your address. We'll get those buttons and stickers out to you ASAP. And if you didn't win, you know, in 10, 10 short weeks, there'll be another contest, another three contest winners. So make sure to get those iTunes reviews in, if you please. Yeah, definitely. And it's just a, it's a nice little thing to do. I, you know, when I'm feeling down, I'll read those reviews. <laughs> Brightens <laughs> our then, day. And then give a thumbs down to all the negative ones. <laughs> My little piece of control in this horrible, horrible world that's falling apart. <laughs> All right, so we kind of teased this a little bit last week, but this episode you're listening to right now is 
our last regularly scheduled normal programming where you're going to be getting what you expect from us. Even the mailbag episode is a little different from our regular format. But if you remember, anyone that's been sticking with us for a while, we took a break last year. We took a break for all of December. It was our way of recharging. We Love doing this podcast so much. It is also something that takes a ton out of us. It's it's so much work every week. And we decided we need to make sure that we don't get burnt out on doing this and ensure the longevity of the podcast. And so we're just going to take a break and do that. And this year, we decided something we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take a different type of a break. Uh, what's that break going to look like, Paul? So next week is going to be an, an extra, extra special episode because next week's episode is going to be another one of our live episodes, which at the time of this recording, we have not recorded yet. So let's hope that there's no audio things and we can actually put out this episode. <laughs> oh, God. But un- uh, unless there are any unforeseen circumstances, we will be putting out a live episode next week. That's going to be super excited. We're very excited about that. We're, we're going to be recording that in a couple days from now. So hopefully that goes well. And then after that, for the next six weeks after that, we'll be doing one of our uh, beloved movie reviews every single week. And now the first one... It's going to be a current movie. It's going to be the most current a movie could possibly be because I th- <laughs> I think we're going to try and record this the day that it comes out. But after that, we're going to kind of go back and review some older movies because typically on the show, on the movie review episodes we've done, they've all been more current movies like What the Health and Cowspiracy. But now we're going to go back. We're going to go back and, and watch some of those older movies that we'll occasionally reference and be like, yeah, I, I think I remember liking that movie that I saw five years ago, but now it's gonna, we're going to get the definitive answer on how we feel about some of these older movies now that we've had the perspective of all the discussions we've had and all the newer movies we've watched. We'll see if they still hold up. Yeah, we're going to be doing... Paul, I think we've teased doing this since episode three, since we did the Unity review and we talked about some of our favorite documentaries and vegan films and... We were like, it'd be fun to go back and, and review these old films. And I th- I think almost every time we talk about a film review, we say that. We should go back yeah. <laughs> and watch all these things. So this is this is something that's been in the works for almost two years at this point. It's our retro film review. And for those that want to play along, we're going to let you know right now what those films are going to be. So as, as we already talked about when we reviewed the trailer for Ferdinand last week and we gave our views on their promotional campaign where they're essentially sponsoring a bull at the gentle barn and we thought about our we talked about our feelings on that so ferdinand that's going to be the next one up after that live episode and then we're going to do bold native if a tree falls speciesism which i am so excited to do with you paul (laughs) never seen it yes peaceable kingdom and then we're wrapping it up with the big granddaddy forks over knives (laughs) so these are going to be episodes in the style of our little side podcast epic nitpick which is a podcast where we just do a film review no news know what we've been eating we just dive right into it so there'll be shorter episodes probably 40 minutes to an hour or something like that uh still probably a long time and i'm sure the people that hate the food talk are going to be so happy about these reviews (laughs) (laughs) until until we get to back to our regular one and we've been backed up on talking about food for two months and then we just have a three-hour segment about what food we've eaten (laughs) in a very special food only episode (laughs) so yeah so if you want to follow along 
watched those films. We've already recorded a few of those, and I think it's a lot of fun. It's really cool. And we, we it's not just a bunch of vegan or plant-based health documentaries, which I feel like the last few reviews we've done have been in that vein. So we talk about things that are more related to direct action and various types of activism. So it's a good time. Yeah, I, I cannot wait to finish recording these, especially to do Ferdinand. I'm excited about that one. John Cena. so now let's get into the regularly scheduled show paul i have nothing exciting to tell people about what we've been eating but i see you made a little note i did yeah so not super duper exciting or anything but i've been spending a lot of time at grindcore house in philadelphia getting a lot of work done it's like a little uh, coffee shop that plays very inaccessible music and is probably not the best place for concentrating on things but i like it anyway so i've been spending a lot of time there and i ran into uh, i ran into carrie who had previously this is the first time we've met but had previously sent me a facebook message kind of giving me a whole list of it was like a hundred different vegan places to try out in philadelphia and i'm still my goal is to somehow make it through that entire list during my time spent in Philadelphia. I don't know if I'll ever be able to do that, but I definitely appreciate it nonetheless. So, and it was cool to meet you. So yeah, not really a food thing, but at a food place. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I would say that the music they play at Grindcore is so inaccessible. It makes great background music for studying. (laughs) Except the, the wild volume fluctuations that happen in the music. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Light on the food talk today because we've already dealt with so much business. And, and with that said, we're going to dive straight into the mailbag. Because the mail never stops. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. There's never a let up. It's relentless. Every day it piles up more and more and more. And you've got to get it up. And the more you get out, the more it keeps coming in. And then the barcode reader breaks. And it's published. It's clearing out. All right, all right, all right. When you control the mail, you control information so the mailbag is comprised of emails that we get comments that have been left on our facebook occasionally messages sent to the facebook or an instagram comment something like that things that we wanted to respond to sometimes it's because we're soliciting questions sometimes people just send them in they're unrelated to any other topic that we've been bringing in we welcome any and all questions and so this is us sort of sorting through at this point We get so many emails from people that we must apologize if we don't get to everyone's. We certainly read everything that comes in. We try our best to respond to everything that comes in. And for the mailbags, we try and curate a good selection of questions that haven't that we haven't addressed before on the show. And I realize, you know, we've been going for over two years now. So I'm sure most people haven't listened to every single episode. So, you know, apologies if we don't get to your question. Some of them will make it into future episodes, like we've been doing, dropping one or two questions in per episode. But that's where all of these come from. If you have a question or comment on anything, send us an email, thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. And we're going to we're going to ramp these up, starting with some real easy, easy hitters, and then bring them up into the thinkers. So, Paul, what is mm-hmm. this first question that we have? So, first one comes to us from Ryan S. on Facebook, who asks, favorite vegan bands? Question mark? Short and sweet. I love it. <laughs> I love it. You know, for someone who, where music has been such a huge part of my life, and obviously veganism is as well, I feel like I don't really listen to that many vegan bands when we got this question and I was trying to rack my brain for some answers, I could think of a lot of vegan musicians who were in bands that I really liked, 
But when I think about vegan bands, I think about the entire band is vegan and especially they sing about vegan things or like veganism is a part of their identity. So, so I'm just going to drop a few out there that I think fit that criteria. And I'm going to say dead in the dirt, drop dead and captive bolt. And then also not bands, but dead present Erica Badu are certainly favorites of mine as well. Paul. Yes. Andy, what you got? So my first two, cause there's, I would say there's a, a sub sect of hardcore and punk that does focus on veganism and vegetarianism. Now, my first two, I cannot confirm that they are, quote, vegan bands, but Youth of Today is my first one. I know that they are at least vegetarian and they have songs about being vegetarian or not eating meat or why you shouldn't eat meat. I cannot confirm that they are indeed vegan, though. Uh, so I'm sorry. And then the second one being Have Heart, which I'm again, I'm pretty sure that the lead singer is at least vegetarian and possibly vegan. You can the listeners can confirm or deny that. But those are two of my all time favorite bands. Another one is AFI. And I know that Davey Havoc and the bass player, I believe, are both vegan. And then the other members are vegetarian. So I think that that fits under that criteria that Andy laid out for us. Uh, another another one of my favorites, Rob Zombie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I unironically love his music, and, but not his film directing because I do not like scary movies. And funny story, one time, because Rob Zombie lives in Connecticut, and one time one of my friends who works at a Whole Foods saw him shopping at the Whole Foods. So I can only dream to one day run into Rob Zombie at a Whole Foods. Riveting. <laughs> not as good as my uh, James Aspie story but and then yeah, the last Paul come back to us when Rob Zombie steals a cookie from you <laughs> <laughs> and then the last one of course the the granddaddy of all vegan bands which is the flaming tsunamis that's all I'm gonna say about that <laughs> all right nice selection Paul <laughs> all right next email this is coming from Ethan Ethan emails in hey beardos I love the show, and after each episode, I'm almost always craving more discussion around the topics presented. Unfortunately, I don't have any IRL friends, that's in real life friends, that I could talk to about them. Have you ever thought about starting a Facebook group so fellow Beardos could get together and discuss? Well, Ethan, I got good news for you. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have a Facebook page. And unlike our Instagram, which even though we will post occasionally about the episodes, the Instagram mostly focuses on the food that, we, that we've been eating, whereas the Facebook group basically is, is just posting articles either that we are going to discuss in episodes, articles that relate to discussions we've had before. And there are people that will comment on them and form some sort of discussion around that. So I would say that's a good place to, that's a good place to start. Yeah, and I, I think you misspoke because you just said Facebook group, which we do not have, but we oh, have oh, we have sorry. the Facebook page. Yes, and yeah, Paul, Paul and I, we haven't even really discussed this question prior to putting it in the mailbag. Um, I know that when we started the podcast, we said we're only going to have one social media outlet, and that was just going to be the Instagram. And then, of course, we we broke down after a year, and we started a Facebook page because everyone was asking us for one of those. And I, I do like the Facebook page because obviously you can have much more of an engaged discussion there. 
Instagram is you're kind of confined to typing on your phones. It's not really the best place to have like lengthy discussions and all that stuff. The reason why that we we haven't delved into a ton of different social media outlets is that it's just it's a lot of time and effort and, and upkeep and work. And the podcast alone is already a lot of those things. And I don't know, like, as far as, like, a group goes, I've seen other, like, for instance, uh, Vegan Warrior Princes Attack, they have a Facebook group, and it's awesome, I'm in it, and a lot of people discuss the topics there, but it also seems like so much work to moderate it and do it correctly, and they do a fantastic job at it, but I don't know if that's something that either Paul and I can really take on at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, let us know. Send us, everyone, if you're listening, if this is something you want, let us know. Send us a message. Send us an email. If this is something you really want, perhaps we'll put it together. But I feel like for us and our, our humble amount of time that we have to devote to all of our lives every week, it's something that might be a little bit out of reach for us to to make sure that we do it well. But let us know if that's something you'd want. At the moment, at least, until we become professional podcasters. Yeah, all that sweet podcast money (laughs) (laughs) so the next one's coming to us from ralph wp chips ralph asks i want to know what are your pet peeves not necessarily related to veganism although they certainly could be mine are when people confuse the terms fewer and less and also when people bite their nails within close proximity of me (laughs) haha all the best and thanks for all you do this is an interesting question. This is an interesting question. I think that actually all of my responses on some level actually point to my drive to promote veganism as well. <laughs> Almost everything that's a pet peeve of mine has to do with basic decency towards others. You know, can't we just be decent, Paul? <laughs> so I just like wrote out a quick list and I started to notice a theme. So I'm going to read them. People who stand too close to you at the self-checkout line. <laughs> this happened to me the other day, and I was just like, they were just all up on me. It was so upsetting. Anyway, people standing on the left side of an escalator. The left <laughs> side is for walking. The right side is for standing. That's what it is. People who talk in movie theaters. People who leave their garbage in movie theaters <laughs> after the movie is over. And for those that go to the reclining seat theaters, people who don't unrecline their seats after they leave the movie theater. How do you even get out of those seats if they're unreclined it's oh it can be done or if they're reclined it can be done i i think like the the movie theater is this real microcosm of examining how inconsiderate other people can be towards others i think because when you are if someone's standing on the left side of the escalator this is a moment that's gone within a minute or less but a movie theater if there's an inconsiderate person that's not really following the pre-agreed upon rules of society (laughs) you are then stuck with that for an hour and a half two hours whatever it might be and it's and it's also seeing films which is like one of my favorite things to do of all time so easily ruined by one inconsiderate person doing something that's only lightly inconsiderate like even if they just don't turn off their phone or if they don't turn the brightness down their phone if they do have to check the time or something like that so those are all of my pet peeves also racism (laughs) yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking when I was thinking about the pet peeves too, I was like, there's definitely those bigger ones, but are those pet peeves or are just those are those more so things that I want to stop people from doing? I yeah, I guess pet peeve is almost like this is something that irks you that maybe doesn't bother a lot of other people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So maybe my things don't count as that, but judging by the amount of people that I encounter doing these things, I'm like maybe I'm in the minority here. <laughs> maybe I'm the only one that wants to enjoy a film without other people <laughs> ruining it. 
All right, George Costanza. (laughs) (laughs) So for mine, I thought of one vegan-related one and one not-vegan-related one. I guess this kind of goes along with maybe this isn't a pet peeve and more of something that I would hope that people think more about. And that's just when vegans either assume that they're right because they're vegan or they assume that something can't be wrong because it's vegan or or they assume that someone can't be doing something wrong because they're vegan or when they see someone doing something wrong but they give it a pass because that person is vegan those are i think that's my biggest pet peeve inside of the the vegan community just just kind of people having this to me it just seems like a very uh it's like you're looking straight ahead. It's like a narrow perception of what's going on. And you're saying, well, this thing is, is furthering a vegan agenda. So it can't, it can't possibly have any downsides. And I just want to promote people thinking more about, because oftentimes it's like, yeah, there, there might be pros to what this person is doing, but there also could be cons. And, and I'd rather have people weighing those out than just backing something just for the sake that it's, that it's vegan. So again, I don't know if that's a pet peeve, but I'm looking what... I'm looking at the definition of a pet peeve on the internet and it says something that a particular person finds especially annoying. It does bother me a lot, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> More than the average person. Yes. And the other my non-vegan related one was when when people have when I'm out to eat with friends and they have unfinished food on their plates and they don't offer it to me and they just throw it away instead. <laughs> I love how those two are not nearly equal in their weight. <laughs> <laughs> just give me those pizza crusts. You're not getting your pizza crusts. Just slide that plate over to me. Yeah, you'll you'll eat that those pizza crusts? Oh yeah. Uh, P- Paul is made of pizza, so he's, we call him Pizza Paul. <laughs> All right. So with those more trivial questions out of the way, some they're, they're nice first date, get to know you kind of questions, I guess, Paul. Let's get into some serious stuff. This one comes to us from Chella Sparrow, who asked on Instagram, what are your thoughts about the Heifer International Project donating animals to developing countries? The school I work at wants to support it, but I have some reservations. So this is a good question. I think we've been asked this before and dodged it or didn't respond to it for some reason. I was actually trying to get Don Moncrief from a well-fed world who has a lot to say about this type of work because they deal with both vegan advocacy for animals as well as global hunger. So these two things kind of go right together. Uh, Paul, for those who are unfamiliar with what Heifer International does, could you explain that to our listeners? And then what is your response on if vegans should support them or not? Or, so the, or just anyone in the world should support them. The basic idea behind something like the Heifer Project or other animal gifting uh, like foundations or donation organizations is that you give them, you give the organization money and they th- theoretically use that money to then buy an animal and send it to a developing country or, or uh, a, a country that is in need of food. And so you are gifting you are gifting these animals for them to be using for food or for, like basically just giving them livestock. And would you would you say that's a that good? is that I would say that's a good summary, Paul. Okay, thank you. And Andy actually pointed me towards the a well-fed world website in which there's a specific there's a specific page that's called 10 reasons to say no to farmed animals as gifts and of course we'll include that 
page on our in our in the show notes. But just to kind of give a quick summary of some of the points that they make, obviously they go are going to go more into detail than I'm going to right now. But w- the first point they make is that most recipients are lactose intolerant and harmed by dairy. And they point to the statistic that 75% of the world is lactose intolerant and 90% of Asian and African populations are lactose intolerant. And a lot of these are the places that these animals are being sent to. So I think it was, I don't know if Milton Mills coined this term, but dietary racism. Do you know if he, he's the one that coined that term? He's the only one that I've heard that has said it. Um, I am unsure. But basically, I've in in his some of his talks that I've seen, Milton Mills kind of points out how the fact that we push dairy products or other products to populations who this is literally harming because they're lactose intolerant or allergic is is a form of racism. Because if if this is all that people have access to, and it's something that's hurting them, it's not not a good situation. So that was one of the reasons that they gave. And a lot of uh, many of the other points that they make point to how it's actually a very ineffective form of charity because a lot of times the animals themselves to, to, to keep the livestock, it's going to require land. It's going to require food for the animals and water for the animals. So th- they're actually they end up using resources that that could have before been going to feed or or for, for people. And now they have to use them for animals instead. And they give the example of teff, which is an Ethiopian grain, and how the land that could have been used and the water that could have been used to grow teff could have um, could have fed people uh, in a lot more of an efficient way than using all those resources and land instead to grow or to, to raise cattle. And so that's that's a a few of the points they make are related to that. And then they talk about some experts in different different areas talking about why these sorts of organizations are not good. And then they kind of conclude with how many of these organizations like Heifer International are possibly deceptive to the public and. The, how a lot of the money that you're giving to them, it might not be, it's not just necessarily a one-to-one donation where it's like you give the money for the cost of one cow and they send one cow. There's not a lot of transparency transparency with some of these organizations. So you don't actually know where your money is going to. And for instance, in 2014, Heifer International, their tax uh, indicated, their taxes indicated that they spent $23 million on fundraising alone. So you don't really know where your donations are going to. And that's a critique of, you know, every or- donation organization, charity organization that's not as transparent. But all in all, there's there's these other reasons why this specific type of charity is not necessarily the best. And actually, Andy, I have a personal experience with this because this happened when I was still teaching high school. The the high school did put on one of the organizations, one of the groups in my high school did put on this sort of organization. And, and one of my students asked me to donate for this. And I was like, no, I'm 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 sorry, I'm, I'm not going to donate to this. I don't think that. And I, I kind of the way that I framed it was that I didn't think that donating money was bad i didn't think that trying to help other people was bad but i explained why 
I could not support this specific type of charity work. The end. Good story. <laughs> <laughs> and then James Aspie stole a cookie from me. <laughs> Much better. Yeah. No, I think that there's obviously a lot of reasons from sort of the animal liberation vegan perspective that this is problematic, that's treating animals as resources. But I think that, yeah, maybe there are some instances in which it's sort of this would this be the best thing? And, and is this a part of dealing with being in a non-vegan world? Is this something that we just sort of have to live with? But I think everything you just laid out for us really shows that there's no reason to make that compromise in this type of instance and that these this type of gift giving is ultimately more harmful than it is helpful. And, you know, it's certainly well-meaning, of course, but I think that it's one of these situations where we can firmly stick with our ethics and, and find better ways to help those in need. Yeah. But we did get Another related question. This is actually a friend of mine who sent me a message that I totally ignored for a while. And I'm going to include it on the show now because I know that he listens. And so I'm just going to – he's going to be anonymous because I haven't asked if I could – he hasn't responded if I can use this on the show yet. (laughs) But I think that it goes really well with it. And it's something that I did not immediately have an opinion on. And even upon doing more research, did not – really come to a conclusion on this whole thing. So he writes, we might be doing some work at my agency with a nonprofit called Apopos. Apologies on that pronunciation. They essentially train African giant pouched rats to sniff out landmines and detect tuberculosis. Struggling with it ethically as they appear to have good animal welfare practices. They give the rats ample space, get playtime, they live out their lives and don't, quote, have to work. And the work is super impactful saves lives in areas where people regularly die from these issues, but it still feels like exploitation in the vein of service animals. So I did a little more research. And, and for those that are unfamiliar with the problem about these landmines that these rats are helping to sort of identify so they can be cleared is uh, according to the International Committee of the Red Cross, more than 800 people are killed and 1,200 are maimed by landmines every single month. So it's a serious problem and it, it takes humans uh, it uh, in the literature that I've read, of course, this is making the the rats sound better. But from a bunch of articles I looked at, said that you know the rats can essentially do the job that would take a human to do in two weeks. They can do it in one day because when the humans are going through with metal detectors, they'll get a hit on a tin can. They'll get a hit on things that aren't explosives. But the rats are trained to sniff out these explosives. So, and they can even sniff out plastic. Uh, landmines that wouldn't get picked up by a metal detector. So that's like one of the main reasons why being why rats are being used for the landmines here. So Paul, mm-hmm. I sent you this question and you said you had an opinion. So so lay it on me because I I am not sure. I am just I'm kind of like I guess I don't know what the effective alternative is for this. And is this just something? that we sort of have to accept as part of our non-vegan world. I think that this is related to the discussion we had about service animals and how it's it, it would feel weird for someone for whom these animals are not providing a service to to go to someone whom these animals are providing a service to and saying, no, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do this thing that is going to make your life it's going to give you more access to, to, to things that, that I would normally have access to anyways. And I, I think part of me is going along with that route for this as well. Like it, it seems weird for me to say, no, you're, you're in, in, in a, 
you're in a position that does not affect me at all. I'm not in, I'm not being threatened by these landmines. And it seemed, it would be, I think wrong of me to say, you're not allowed to have any, you're not allowed to have these resources that are possibly going to save your lives. So for that reason, I think I'm not, I'm not against this and not that I think this makes it better. I mean, not that I think that this makes it right necessarily, but on the Apopo website, there actually is a whole section about animal welfare and, and how they handle these rats. And it's again, I don't think that this excuses the, the, the fact that they're still using animals and, and, exploiting the animals but it definitely i guess eases my mind a little bit that the way that they treat the animals according to their website seems to be decently well wouldn't you say though that if there was an animal welfare section on some dairy they would say similar things we treat our animals well and a a bad animal isn't gonna make us money and all of these things yeah yeah it's in their best interest to make us feel like they're treating these rats really well. But Andy, there's a YouTube video of a rat getting their belly rubbed. Ugh. These rats are these rats are adorable. I think also we haven't mentioned this yet, but the rats are apparently too light to actually set off these landmines. So it's not like they're sending these rats out and they're just exploding all the time. So yeah, and and it actually says not a single rat has ever died in a minefield. Yeah. So so. Yeah, I guess for me, it kind of falls into one of those things where, like, I don't love that this has to happen, but I also don't love that these landmines were planted. And I think that even if maybe philosophically I'm like, "Uh, I don't think this is something I would promote. But again, it's one of those things where it's like, pay attention to your own backyard first. And there's so much good that we can do in our own communities why why spend time denigrating those that are doing this work in other countries Obviously, my friend here is in a weird position because the agency he's working with will potentially be promoting this. So that's like, I guess that's like a little bit different of a question. But I guess if I was in his shoes, I wouldn't put up a big fuss about it. I don't I don't think I would either. And and another reason is because this this work has an end goal, you know, hopefully new landmines won't continue to be placed and then this work will have to keep happening. It's, I would hope that eventually, I mean, obviously not anytime soon, unfortunately, but I would hope that eventually this work is not permanent. It's not like this is this, they're trying to set up this thing to go on forever. I don't, I don't think they're trying to make this as far as I know they're I, I would hope they're not trying to make this into some sort of profit making rat sniffing landmine business. And it's just kind of, we want to help these people. And then once we get rid of the landmines, we're good. So that's another reason why I think I'm, I'm, I feel okay about this. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I, I, I agree with my friend's sentiment though. The whole thing just sort of makes me uncomfortable. You know, I'm just like, uh, I, it's just one of those things where I'm like, is this just a part of sometimes you have to work a non-vegan job? I think we got, we got a question about this. I think we'll probably turn it into a whole other episode, but someone's saying like, how do you feel about vegans working non-vegan jobs? This almost falls into that category where it's like, 
you know, not every aspect of every job can be amazing. And sometimes, you know, we work under this horrible system and sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah I, I would. This is when I'd love to hear from our listeners about. So send us an email, beardvegans at gmail.com. We'll, you can check out a link to learn more about how these rats are being used. And uh, let us know if you were working for this agency, what would you do? What would you do? By the way, Andy, that's thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. Ooh, busted. <laughs> so anyways, let's move on into our next question coming to us from Instagram from Smiles247, who asks, Hi, guys. Love your show. And was just wondering what your thoughts were about the common phrases used that imply violence against animals, such as, there's more than one way to skin a cat, flogging a dead horse, like a lamb to slaughter. Hopefully these aren't all Australian sayings and you've heard of them. Why are they accepted by the general non-vegan population and how can we change this is this even an issue this is a good question because yeah some of these (laughs) phrases are pretty horrific more than one way to skin a cat like yeah that's yeah it's kind of messed up and being a dead horse and all these things i think to that that last question is this even an issue i think yeah i think that the the language we use the phrases we use does shape the reality around us and i will point people to episode 13 that we did way back when called effective language for vegan advocates and we talked about certain terms that we think we shouldn't use and alternatives and we also interviewed christopher sebastian about the language that we use but I think we mostly were focusing on on more I think in that we were focusing on things that people would consider more directly tied to advocacy. And this is this is what I think a lot of people would consider like a more frivolous thing. Some people might be like, ah, whatever. It's just a saying. Everyone knows what it means. It doesn't matter. But I do I do find myself questioning the use of these these phrases. I don't know why they're accepted by the general population other than animal, you know, use is accepted by the general population. So it stands to reason that if someone doesn't have a problem with what happens to a pig in a slaughterhouse, they probably don't mind a phrase like one more than one way to skin a cat. But I do think that we can replace them with alternatives. Some of my favorites, you can (laughs) uh, peel two carrots with one knife or my absolute favorite feed two birds with one scone. I I remember Andy saying that for the first time or me me hearing it for the first time on an episode of the beard vegans. And it made me, so happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It rhymes. Good pun. Uh, I also want to point people towards a video that was done by Catherine, who does the Veggie Planet YouTube page. It's just called Vegan Idioms. And in that, Catherine will say the non-vegan version and then say the vegan version. And it's very funny. I think oh, Catherine, so good. Catherine makes amazing videos. I love the, their style. But my favorite one is more than one way to peel a potato. So more than a way to skin a cat. So you can check that out if you're looking for some funny alternatives. I think some are a little more practical to use than others, but definitely yeah. we're checking out. And honestly, check out all the Veggie World videos because very, very thoughtful commentary on a lot of similar issues that we talk about on the show. Hell yeah. All right. Let's move on. Paul, I feel like we always have some sort of teacher question for you. <laughs> so this is the prerequisite teacher question for Paul. This is an email coming from Cora P., I'm in my final years of teacher's college, and I have worked with children for about seven years. I have noticed sometimes veganism and teaching don't go together very well. 
For example, the food guide in our curriculum contains dairy and meat. I know that Paul has mentioned being a teacher before. Do you ever notice you have to hide your veganism during the school day? I'm from Canada, so I'm not aware of the curriculum in the States, so it may be different. Is there a way to appropriately incorporate veganism into a lesson plan? Especially when I'm just a teacher candidate and don't have my own classroom. I want to be an advocate for veganism, especially since children are so empathetic and most would agree with the vegan message. But I also don't want other teachers to think I'm preachy and, quote, pushing my lifestyle on the students. Any advice for how I can do this and still one day get a full-time teaching job? So, Paul, you've answered questions kind of like this, but I think not quite like this before. And, like, not only you, – you've, I think you've answered – if your students know you're vegan, but do you ever quote push veganism or do you try and incorporate it? I know you're a math teacher, so maybe that's a little bit harder. <laughs> One plus yeah. two equals tofu, but <laughs> so I not to make any assumptions, but just from what Cora was saying, I would guess that there may be teaching smaller kids or health because I couldn't think of any like for instance high school subjects besides health that would be incorporating the food guide in the curriculum. I could be wrong though. So I think for one thing, my experience was different because of that, where with, with math, I wasn't directly having to give them non-vegan lessons. Like there wasn't any, like if there was ever a, 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 a word problem that was like, you eat two pounds of meat, she eats five pounds of meat. How many pounds of meat have you eaten altogether? I would just change it to like pounds of fruit or something like that, which I did do a couple of times, but that's really the extent. <laughs> that's the extent of the curric my curriculum pushing non-vegan stuff. So I do think that there's definitely a little bit of a difference with that versus teaching little kids where you might have to talk about diet or teaching health where you might have to talk about nutrition. But I will say about... The fact that you are not a full-time teacher yet, I do think that once you are a full-time teacher, you will have much more control about the things that you want to push in your classroom. So I would say if you're not able to uh, talk about veganism or talk about animal ethics or anything like that as much as you'd like to at the current moment, I would say don't, don't feel guilty about that don't stress out about that because like i said when you hopefully when you do become a full-time teacher you'll have more you'll have more freedom and especially because i mean this is just me personally but if i'm in a classroom with a full-time teacher and i'm trying to get a full-time teacher position i definitely i don't i wouldn't feel like that's the time to push push the envelope because then it especially if that teacher has maybe negative views about this sorts these sorts of things they might then put in like a bad word not to scare you or anything but that's the things that i would personally worry about so i wouldn't try to push push any buttons until maybe i had a little bit more power or a little bit more freedom in the classroom and the last thing that i wanted to say was something that one of my when i was going to school to be a teacher one of my professors told me that is a piece of advice not related to veganism, but is definitely going to apply in this situation. A piece of advice that I thought about all the time. And that's, it, it came up when talking about all of the different, in the U S at least all the different 
pieces that you had to hit in the curriculum and how it sometimes seems unrealistic that we have to cover all this all this content and we have to take prepare them for all these tests and we have to do all these things and you have to be teaching them certain things and not teaching them other things and it seems overwhelming but one of my professors said you can you can figure out the ways you can, you can figure out ways to push the things that you want to push the things that you feel are important while still adhering to whatever whatever standards you have to meet it's, and and like essentially i'm not wording it as well as they did but essentially what they're saying is just figure out how to play the system because you you have these sets of things that you know you need to do figure out how to do those things while also talking about or pushing pushing the discussions that you also want to talk about and that's a good way for a teacher as a teacher not to kind of get overwhelmed with all of the things you have to do because teachers love complaining about all of the different pieces that we, all the different tasks we have to do, all the different tests we have to prepare for. And it is a lot and it is frustrating. And I understand why teachers complain about these things. But what I did was I just figured out like, okay, what do I need to do? I'm going to basically do those things I need to do. Sometimes I'll do the minimum that I need to do in order for my administration to be happy and then i'll do the rest of the the rest of the time i have i'll do the things that i want to do and i'll teach the things that i want to teach so just figure out how to make you know your principal and your administration figure out what you need to do to make them happy and do the minimum of that and then spend the rest of your time teaching the things that you actually want to teach and that you think are important and and i do think that there are some uh, vegan children's books that have been coming out recently. I've been seeing a few pop up. I know there's that one, there's that one n- kind of nutrition guide that we talked about with all the kind of colorful pictures and, and all the little uh, plants and stuff have cute little faces on them. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember what exactly it is right now. We just tried to Google a little bit and couldn't find it. I did however, come across another children's book called that's why we don't eat animals. <laughs> so, so not that I can vouch for this book cause I haven't read it, but I know that these sorts of books do exist. And I think you could also find books that are not necessarily that upfront about it, but that also promote, you know, empathy and compassion. And you can, you can, you can, I think guide your curriculum about fostering those sorts of things in, in children and respect for other living things, respect for other people, respect for for living all living things. It's like you can, I think you can push those things without necessarily talking about veganism. And then other times maybe you can talk directly about veganism and then say, hey, remember how we've been all about compassion and empathy and then tie that into veganism. Not that I'm a, an elementary school teacher, not that I know that you're an elementary school teacher, but... So I don't know exactly how those little, little kids would take to that, but I think that's what I would say. Yeah. And since we're talking about vegan children's books, I'm just going to give a plug for Robin Raven Santa's first vegan Christmas. Cause I looked through that pretty recently and it's beautifully done. Yeah. Nice. I think this ties into a point that we're going to be talking a little bit about on our next episode on the live episode, which is sort of knowing when to advocate And I think that there's all this pressure to always be this amazing, perfect advocate and always speak up and always say the right thing at all times. But like you were saying, Paul, there's a lot to be said for strategically 
placing those discussions and knowing that you don't always have to say something all the time. And I think that taking that pressure off of ourselves, that it's okay to wait for the better opportunity. I think that can then help us in our advocacy and also help prevent activist burnout as well. Thank you, Andy. So the next question comes again from Instagram from Santara Holler. Assuming you aren't Bill Gates, we are not, with endless options, how do you reconcile having to use or participate in non-vegan things? For example, driving cars with leather interior, having to order non-vegan items for work events, using pet medication that has been presumably tested on animals? This is a good question. I think this also kind of even relates to the, the question about the giant pouched rats that we were just talking about. That there, there, there may, in fact, just be some things that are out of our grasp and out of our reach. And I think that it's important for us to remember that being vegan is about doing the best we can as far as possible and practical and practicable. And certain things like getting vegan leather for your car is going to be out of reach for a lot of people. And I think that it's important to keep our eye on the prize and do what we can and not get too caught up in these things that sort of at this point are sort of inevitabilities of the current climate that we live in. And that by working to create a more vegan friendly world, which for me means doing the vegan education, inspiring others to, to go vegan, things of that nature, sort of first and foremost on my mind. Doing these things helps create a population that is going to work to solve these problems and make it not a thing. You know, a vegan population is not going to be demanding a leather interior. So as we start to grow veganism, these things that are a lot harder for us to deal with won't be as much of a problem anymore. I think about this in terms of when people are like, oh, well, you know, the the tires on your car, even if you have cloth interior. Like when I bought my van, I got the cloth seats because it was the cheapest. And, you know, so if the default cheapest version was leather seats, I'm not sure what I would have done depending on my budget. I, I don't make a ton of money driving around selling shirts all over the country, you know, so. But presumably the tires that I use still have some kind of animal product in them. That's what I've been told. And it's just one of those things where it's like, uh, is there an alter is the alternative to not drive my car ever and find a whole new way of life? I guess maybe, but I think that when we're talking about advocating to people and getting them to change, you know, first and foremost, their diet, but then also other little things like their leather belt or deciding not to go to the, the aquarium or the zoo or the rodeo or something like that. I think it's important to pitch it as a a possible and practical lifestyle and an achievable lifestyle. So I think both in terms of being kind to ourselves in our own lives and in our advocacy, it's important to recognize that there might just be some things that we don't have control over. Maybe some people do. Maybe some people have more money and they are able to do these things. But I think in general, it's just important for us to be kind to ourselves in this regard and just keep working for that vegan world that we want and know that we're working to make it so the next generation of people won't have to deal with these decisions. Yeah, there are definitely some things that we don't have control over, just like I don't have control over the construction vehicles that are currently parked outside of my apartment making lots of loud noises. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I think it's also the, the only point that I really wanted to add to what Andy already so eloquently put was that I do think it's also important to keep in mind that just because we don't have a solution to something to 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 one aspect right now for instance the, let's say the tires doesn't mean that in the future there will not be a solution to that 
just think of all the technological advances we've made in the recent past. And these are things that 20 years ago, a lot of people would say, oh, that's not going to exist in 20 years. That would be ridiculous. So I, I, I think there's things that we can't even imagine that we will have in 20, 30, 40 years. And hopefully some of those things will help us to tackle some of these other issues that are a part of our day-to-day life that do involve some forms of animal exploitation that are very, very difficult to avoid at this present time. Hopefully it'll be a lot easier to avoid them in the future. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're making leather out of pineapples now, Paul, like and mushrooms. Yeah. So, and obviously those things are not at a manageable price point for the average population right now, but just think, about the technology advances and the things that I, I never would have thought, oh, they're going to make leather out of pineapple and mushrooms and apples and all these things. So, yeah, just keep keep that in mind and keep plugging along, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. So this next email comes in from Anonymous, not the organization, but, <laughs> but just possibly. an anonymous person, I'm assuming. What up, beards? Okay, here's a thinker for you. Would you rather have a situation with an animal living a life of exploitation, for instance, a dairy cow who was forced to go through the most horrific thing she would have to go through as a typical dairy cow, but have her life cut short by way of slaughter so that she didn't suffer long, or would you rather this animal live out their natural life and not be exploited at all, but they were confined to one small space and received no socialization or exercise? So on one hand, you have an animal living a very abusive life with a great deal of exploitation and suffering, but is extremely short-lived. On the other hand, you have an animal not being used at all, nor killed, but they live a very sad and lonely life with no chance of things getting better. The scenario recently popped into my head because I visited a very reputable rescue organization's cat and dog shelter. My friend who works there gave me a tour, and when we got to the dog room, she went stall to stall explaining all the behavioral problems many of the pups had and how some of them have been in foster or shelters for years. Years. She also told me that this organization, who has been largely known for their rehabilitation work and training, will no longer focus on this but instead on no-kill efforts across the country. I think as animal lovers and vegans, we tend to like the sound of no-kill. Obviously, we don't want these animals to be killed. But when she told me that they were taking away the rehabilitation, the thing that actually helps dogs get into homes, and that many animals have been there for years, I couldn't help but feel incredibly sad, conflicted, and annoyed. It's well known that the more time a dog spends in a shelter, the more they start to experience behavioral problems, which will lessen their chances of being adopted. Is a life in a cage worth living? Personally, I've got lots of opinions, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on all this mess. This is a great question. And actually, that that final thought there is a life in a cage, a life worth living. I think actually kind of maybe ties into a, a, one of our, the last questions we'll be answering. But I, I have experienced this. I used to volunteer at a shelter, and, and that just involved going there and walking the dogs and the first day that I went, I was like, this is going to be so much fun. I'm just going to hang out with dogs. They're going to be so excited that I'm taking them for a walk. And it was a new no-kill shelter. And these dogs very quickly sort of became, I don't know if this is the right term, but like unsocialized to, to enjoy the company of humans. And so I thought I was going to go spend all this time with these dogs and get to play with them. And they just couldn't care about me at all. And it just, it wasn't, a a fun experience. I continue to do it because I think it's an important thing to do to help out. But it, that experience alone did sort of put into perspective for me. I'm like, I don't know if, if no kill is necessarily the way to go. 
Um, but this is a topic that I personally, I haven't really settled on an opinion on it. So sorry to anonymous there, but Paul, what, yes, Andy? what say you to this real thinker of a question? So this is, a, this is an interesting question because it's, it's the, the first part of it at least poses a hypothetical of two bad situations, two situations that I don't want to have to choose between and, and two situations that I don't believe we would typically have to choose between. I, I think it's somewhat related to what the, the rest of the question goes on into. But if I had to pick between the two situations, I think I would pick the second one, the, the one where the animal is living out their natural life and not being exploited at all, but confined to one small space and receiving no socialization or exercise. I, I think that there's, there, there's just, and this happens, of course, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but this happens occasionally. I, I feel like where we'll be discussing something where it it's, there's a, there's just, there just seems to be some difference between animals that are exploited or hurt or killed as kind of an accident or a byproduct of something versus just directly being the cause of that animal suffering or death. You know what? This probably came up when we talked about the animals that are possibly hurt or killed in farming process. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and so, so I I don't know. It, It just seems like there's for me personally, it, it just seems like there's there's a difference between being the direct uh, reason for suffering versus this suffering still happening as of maybe, maybe because of something you're doing, but you're not making the choice to actively keep doing this thing, I guess, if that kind of makes sense. But I think the more important discussion is in the kind of talking about the the no-kill shelters versus rehabilitation. And I I think that I, I I still think that there doesn't it doesn't necessarily need to be one or the other. I think there are probably people that are trying to do work to to both get no kill efforts pushed, but then also work on rehabilitating animals. And like you said, Andy, I, I think that people can volunteer to to help with the kind of the socialization and now obviously not everyone's going to be able to do that and and there's you know 10 billion different ways to help animals let alone to to help other humans as well so it's it's you know we we unfortunately only have a limited amount of time and we have to choose the, the things that we want to do and where we want to put our efforts but i think for a lot of people that could be a good way to kind of help with this effort is to volunteer your time to help socialize these animals so that hopefully they then will get adopted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hadn't really thought about how the, the sort of the comparison that's being made here doesn't necessarily line up to the no kill shelter situation. So essentially the cow that's just sort of left alone in deprivation is the dog that's left alone in deprivation, but the cow that's raised and slaughtered for food in a horrible way is not the same as the the idea that you can alleviate this animal's suffering and take them out of the system by killing them in a shelter. Yeah, I I, I feel like there's 
I, to, I, this is just my opinion personally, but I feel like a, a cow that's being raised and uh, as the, the beginning of the question says, forced to go through the most horrific things as a typical dairy cow would, I think that that's different than an, a, a dog or a cat that's in a shelter, that's in a kill shelter that then eventually maybe doesn't get adopted and is put down. Yeah, yeah. And and so it's almost like the equivalent would be if someone's form of direct action was to go to a dairy farm and just shoot the cows to end their misery right then and there. Hmm. Hmm. Are you saying that that would be like the the first the first situation? Or that would be more like the animal, the animal, or the, sorry. That, the, would, be, that would be more like an equivalent of the reasoning why someone would promote a kill shelter because there's too many animals, there's not enough to adopt, it takes too many resources, and it's just a miserable life for the dog to be in this no-kill shelter. So we're going to put this dog to sleep, we're going to euthanize this dog, we're going to kill this dog to end their misery and also to make room for other dogs to come in. And so I, I think that for me, the, the the big reason that resonates there is that it's essentially saying the non-existence of this dog is better than the existence of this dog. You know, like their life is so bad, they should just be dead kind of thing. Yeah. And so I feel like if you transpose that over to the animals that, you know, some see that as an act of mercy. And whereas the animal that's the, the cow that's raised for dairy is is not that nothing about that is some act of mercy. And like, I guess, yeah. Okay. When they die, their suffering has ended and that's good. <laughs> like on some level, I guess you could argue that, but I think that like these two things aren't necessarily equivalent. So it's almost like two questions are being asked here. And I, I think that a- any cow would probably prefer the, the solitude, but lack of exploitation over the, the abject misery of being a dairy cow. Yeah. You know, but again, it's two non-preferable situations. And then, as far as like the sh- the animals in the shelter go, it's like, yeah, I've seen a lot of great arguments and firsthand why no-kill shelters might not be the best solution. But this also falls into a thing where it's like, I don't know if there is a best solution in this situation. But yeah, maybe it is more effort to get these dogs rehabilitated, socialized, and find them good homes. But if we don't have the resources to do that, it's all it's like fine and dandy to say that's the solution. Everyone should go volunteer and and help walk the dogs and do all this stuff. But the reality is we don't have there isn't the time, money or resources necessary to make that happen. So it's like we can pose a hypothetical, but the hypothetical, if it's not going to come true without some sweeping movement of people that want to help these animals, there's already a lot that do. I honestly don't know. I don't know if I can really have any definitive answer on this question. Yeah. And you know what? I was also actually just thinking of something that would maybe be counter to the the points that we were just making that an animal that's confined to one small space and receiving no socialization. I, I, I mean, I think that there are examples that we've seen from zoos and aquariums of that exact situation where these animals suffer like emotional and mental health problems as well. And I think that that's like a, so it's like a different kind of suffering that they would be going through or could possibly be going through. Yeah. And and no doubt animals in captivity suffer horribly. And I don't want to minimize 
the, you know, if there was that cow that was forced to live in the life of, say, a zoo animal, I don't think that that's a good life for that cow whatsoever. But I do think that kind of goes to your point of intentional harm versus non-intentional harm. And, yeah. you know, zoos are aquariums and whatnot. They're intentionally bringing animals into this situation to profit off of them. And I know that some people say, well, they rehab and they do good stuff for the species, but they're there to make a profit at the end of the day. They have to make a profit if they want to continue to do the work that they do. So so I think there is a difference because people don't bring in these dogs into shelters to make a profit and to show them off to the public. And I mean, on some level, yes, maybe they use it for their fundraising, please. But like ultimately, the goal is just to get the animals out of there. They don't they don't want to keep those animals there. They want them out of there, whereas the zoo wants to keep those animals there. So, but what you just said, Andy, this is completely unrelated, but what you just said was the zoos might want to like rehabilitate them and get them better. But at the end of the day, they need to make money if they want to stay in business. Isn't, could, isn't that how you would describe a animal sanctuary? Yeah, but I think you could say that animal sanctuaries and, and I don't even want to give zoos that much of a benefit of a doubt that they're just they're, they're just there as altruistic f- functions to rehabilitate and preserve species. Yeah. Some some zoos. I don't know. I don't know. We got to do a zoo episode, Paul. I know we got an email <laughs> or two about that recently, but but I think it's easy to it, it's easy to see that for most sanctuaries, the life an animal is provided on that is so much better than that of an animal in a zoo. Yeah. No. No doubt. And I was. I was. I agree with you. I was just kind of poking the question because I think it might lead to an interesting discussion, but maybe we'll do that at another time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So anyway, I think we've given enough of a (laughs) non-answer. I think it's time for us to move on into our next question. Cool. So this is from Mama Killer Tofu on Instagram. Recently, I've been seeing a flux of feminist pages and some others taking aim at their vegan followers. There are pages that are preaching intersectional support and values until animals are mentioned. I've been unfollowing, but I'm wondering if you have any suggestions on how to get the feminist and environmentalist groups to understand that animal agriculture should absolutely be included in this conversation. Great question. I think we've tried to tackle this a few times on the show before from various angles. And and honestly, the I think the best advice that I can give is to... One, like make sure that you are definitively sort of a part of that group, because if some outsider is coming in, I'm thinking about this in terms of men telling women they're not good feminists unless they are vegan kind of thing. I think that it's important to to make sure that you're working within your own community. It sounds like killer mama tofu that you are, in fact, doing that, that you're part of these groups, you're part of that community. But I think that I'm just saying that as like kind of a general thought for people, because often, you know, we hear people that are sort of they want to they want to promote veganism to every group and they want to have some reason why if you're not vegan, then you don't really support X, Y, Z. I I recently saw someone say, if you're not really vegan, then you don't really support Black Lives Matter and all these things. And it was coming from a white person. And it's like, not a good look, not a good look. So make sure, (laughs) make sure you're advocating within your own group. But I think that it's just, it's important to sort of point people towards the work of those that are already in the field. So for instance, on these feminist pages, pointing people towards the work of people like Carol Adams, for instance, and, and showing like, these are, these are like brilliant feminist thinkers that have been in this movement for a very long time. 
and they have made this connection and they see why understand regardless of that you're still dealing with all the baggage of unlearning speciesism that all of us as human beings deal with so there is still that defensiveness and i think that people there's just sort of that extra layer of well i care about this specific issue and animals aren't as important that will come into play and that's a really hard thing to penetrate but i think that pointing people towards the work of of people that are doing this and also care about what, you know, feminism, environmentalism, whatever it might be to me, I think that that has been the most effective way for me to break through to people that I'm trying to communicate those messages to. Like I'm, I'm not just some, you know, straight white guy that's trying to tell you what to do. I can point you towards these resources, but in general, I, I shy away from that conversation unless it's, you know, a, a bunch of other straight white guys. And like, we're having that conversation. What do you think, Paul? I don't know if I have anything to add, Andy. I think that you kind of encompassed everything that I was going to say. Well, all right then. Shall we, shall we move along? Sure. Yeah. And that's also one, again, on any of these questions, if people have advice for our listeners on your experience in, in turning people around on these things, send us an email, thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. <laughs> all right. So we got this email from Victoria S who wrote in, I've been listening to your podcast a lot lately, and I've had a question over a reoccurring theme. I don't want to sound ignorant after my own body struggles, but how do you promote having a healthy vegan lifestyle without sounding rude or body shaming? I have no intent to make people feel bad, but I do want my close friends and family to be as healthy and long-lived as possible. What do you suggest? This is, this is a great question, I think, Paul. I think that we often sort of throw out, oh, that was fat shaming and and we've gone into that in the past, but I think it also is sort of shorthand for us at this point. So how, how do you think that people can sort of promote this? Should they promote this without making people feel bad about their bodies, feel ashamed of their bodies or, or being rude? I think that the, the first, the first thing that I would say would be to not make it about losing weight, because I, I think that there's a, you know, there's, we're, we're constantly being bombarded with new diets that are specifically focused on making people lose weight. And, and oftentimes diets in general are meant to make people lose weight. So I think, and, 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 you know, it's like veganism, the vegan diet that we eat anyways, shouldn't be, or I would hope that the focus is not for people to lose weight, that people aren't being vegan because they want to lose weight. And so I I think when promoting a quote, healthy vegan lifestyle, I think you can, you can use that to your advantage because it's, it's something that if, if you said someone, if you told someone to go on the Atkins diet or the paleo diet or some, or one of these other kind of fad diets or gluten free to like, oftentimes people already have these preconceived notion about all those diets and what they're supposed to do. People are doing these things in large parts, many people to lose weight. So I think that we kind of have that advantage that veganism, the vegan lifestyle, it means something different. So I think just reiterating that it's not about losing weight is an important thing or not even bringing that up, but making sure not to bring it up, I guess that it, that, 
you don't you don't care about what this person's weight is. You don't care about what their body looks like. You just want them to, you know, live for a long time, as long as possible. I don't know. That just rambled a lot, Andy. What do you think? So the question was, you know, how do I do it without sounding rude? And I, this sounds so basic, but my advice is don't be rude. Um, <laughs> you know, I think to me, hopefully that should be an easy one. But I get that a lot of people and I, I still I still struggle with how to how to phrase these things. I am not an expert in this. I'm still learning very much and how to sort of advocate to make sure people aren't fat shaming and people are like, what, so you can't talk about health at all? And I'm like, no, that's not the thing. It's just, it's about making people feel bad about themselves. And I think things that we should lay out are that, you know, looking at someone, you cannot tell necessarily what their health is. You know, I think a lot of people, they, they, they do what we call concern trolling where they're just like, oh, I'm just trying to help you and trying to be healthy. But there are plenty of slim and athletic looking people that do also have health problems. You can't identify those things from how they look at them. Same thing goes with someone is fat or if someone's too skinny or whatever it might be, you know, I say too skinny in air quotes, of course. And so I think it's just, it's important to not make it about appearance and to not offer unsolicited advice. Unless someone comes to you and they're like, I'm trying to reach these goals. I'm trying to do this thing. I want to be more healthy there's almost nothing that you can tell someone that they haven't heard before about their appearance or or how they feel about the way that they look. And if someone does come to you and it's a friend or a family member and they're like, I'm feeling unhealthy or I'm like, I don't like the way I'm eating or whatever it might be, have that conversation. That's an invitation to have the conversation. But in general, you know, talking about people's appearance doesn't help them. There's, there's plenty of evidence out there that suggests that, making people feel ashamed about who they are, whether intentional or not, actually drives them further into their behaviors. And this could be about smoking or like whatever it might be. So like know that you, even if you think that it's helping someone, you're sort of bringing attention to a problem. It's it's usually having the opposite effect. I also think an important thing to avoid is demonizing food or specific types of food or food groups or food categories because I think that, you know, and this is this is what one of our big one of one of our big issues with a lot of the health documentaries is that they're they just go so hard on oil and anything that has oil is is terrible for you and coconut even coconut oil is bad for you and and if you if you have a teaspoon of oil you are going to die tomorrow and it just it's demonizing food just leads to people feeling guilty when they, whenever they are around these foods or when they eat these foods. And that's not, I think that if you are trying to get someone to be overall quote healthier, that's creating an atmosphere that can be potentially very mentally unhealthy. If someone is constantly feeling guilty or ashamed to eat specific types of foods. Yeah, it's certainly a recipe for eating disorders. And, and we even see that in terms of ex-vegans. You know, Often when you see some story about someone who's no longer a vegan and you look at their story, it's because they were promoting or being on – it's because they were promoting or they were on some very highly restrictive diet. And you know, healthy food, unhealthy food, junk food, all these things that sort of assign value to – the food, you know, that we eat, clean food, you know, clean eating, all, all of these things that are just kind of like meaningless terms. I was at uh, a veg fest, it was at the Atlanta veg fest 
couple of weeks ago and I, I offer sizes up to 4X in my shirts and I had just made a sign because I think a lot of people that might wear a 4X are not used to being catered to at VegFest. And so they, I was like, I'm going to make a sign so people know that we have these things because otherwise they just might not know. And like within 15 minutes of the door opening, this this guy walked by. He's like, 4X. Well, if you're eating right, you shouldn't need a 4X. And I was just like, oh, that's such – I just said straight up. I was like, that's a really rude thing to say. And he, he got you know very defensive, of course. But he was like – he was assigning value judgment to the food that someone's eating. And it's like you don't know – you don't know someone's story. So, yeah. it, you know, it's just it's best to stay in your lane in this regard. He wasn't even assigning value to the food someone was eating. He was assigning value to the shirt size that someone was wearing. This guy said he didn't even know that shirts were made in 4X. And I was just like, what? Like they make up, to, I don't know, 8X or more? Like, I don't know. It's just it was, it was a really interesting interaction. But it's like, obviously, there are people that would wear 4X. Yeah. So that sucks. Anyway, I guess. That's all I have to say on that. Again, that's something that I feel like I'm I'm still very much learning, even though in some level I've sort of been thrust into this place of having to represent it just due to my body size and the fact that I've written about it a few times. So, uh, yeah, I would, would love to get other people's perspective on those things. All right, Paul, I think we got two more questions left. Two more. So Nicole Y. emailed in from Alberta, Canada. I have a friend that has food sensitivities. She says that she is sensitive to starch. Yes, all starch. Caffeine, tomatoes, and doesn't like peppers, onions, or any condiments. When she eats the foods she is sensitive to, she feels horrible systemically. She feels bloated, tired, her psoriasis flares up, her hearing is affected, and she just feels sore. If she is eating, quote, properly, she has none of these side effects. She flat out told me that she would not survive if she went on a vegan diet. Her current diet consists mostly of animal products. A lot of vegan foods contain some form of starch. My question is, do you think there are some people that it is just not possible for them to be vegan, excluding the people where their location is a factor? This is a great question. I'm surprised we haven't addressed this on the show before. This is something that I, when I was, when I was touring around and doing a lot of outreach on campuses, every now and then, you know, every one, every three weeks, I'd get someone that I was talking to that would say, well, I'm allergic to X, Y, and Z, and that makes it really hard to be vegan. Or I have this specific medical condition and it would be impossible or nearly impossible for me to be vegan. And in my inclination in that moment, well, like, you know, first I would say, well, Hey, we of course do not want you to die. And and I think sort of my fallback is often to say veganism is about more than just the food that we take in. Obviously, that's sort of the most prevalent practice of veganism that people see. They think it's just a diet or something about what we eat. But if someone genuinely cares about not using animals as things, not exploiting animals in that regard, there are many steps that we can take to make sure that we're doing the best we can, even if we can't live up fully within the food that we take in. And that includes, you know, belts and shoes and all those things. And again, sometimes those aren't necessarily financially accessible. You tell someone to go switch over their shoes right away, but not going to a rodeo, not going to an aquarium, uh, doing activism for animals, signing petitions, whatever, whatever it might be. There's a lot that we can do that's more than just the food. So I think that that's something that we can talk to people about. And then I guess my other, my other inclination was to, you know, say that to them and then go home and research it and learn how I could then prove them wrong. 
the next time someone brought that up, well, <laughs> I actually learned that people on Crohn's can be, you know, all whatever it might be, which I think is not helpful. I think, you know, often people with chronic diseases and illnesses and whatever symptoms it might be, they get, again, that unsolicited advice, they get that from everyone. And I think probably especially from vegans or people that are really caught up in plant-based eating, you know, we 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 want to think that it's the cure for absolutely everything out there. And it's not necessarily that. I think that often a plant-based diet can aid in in the treatment of certain diseases. I think we've certainly seen the evidence for that. But I was doing some research on this. I was trying to to figure out, like, is this the case? Is there actually a condition that would straight up prevent someone from surviving and thriving on a plant-based diet? And I found a lot of conditions where a lot of people were saying it's a lot harder to be vegan or have a plant-based diet on with, with one of these things. And, and they included herpes, Crohn's, irritable bowel syndrome. And of course, certain allergies could make things a lot harder. And this person in the, the question that we got about, what was it? No caffeine, no tomatoes, peppers, onions, condiments, all of these things. And some of those obviously weren't allergies. They were just things that you dislike. And I don't know, you can't force yourself to eat something you dislike. <laughs> if, if my only option was to eat raw tomatoes for like a month or die... I would die with cilantro. Yeah. (laughs) You know? And so, so I looked it up and I found all these accounts of people saying like, I tried so hard to be vegan, but I have, you know, Crohn's or IBS or whatever it is. And it was just too hard. And then for every story I found like that, I found someone that's like, I actually treated my IBS with a vegan diet. It's like one of those things where it's like, I think it's important for us to be sympathetic and acknowledge to people that like, yes, some people have a lot more difficulties maintaining a vegan diet with certain conditions and it's not necessarily our job to prove them wrong on that front that we can, we can show support for them. Maybe we can help to find smaller steps that they can take to work on these things. But ultimately I feel like it's not, it's not a positive thing for the vegan movement. If we have, you know, healthy, able-bodied functioning, you know, adults that, that go to people, that are having these issues, people that have never dealt with any of these chronic diseases going to people that are struggling to be vegan or think they can't be vegan because of it and shaming them for that. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so many other people that we can be working to advocate towards that. I think that it, it really does our movement a disservice to do those things. So I, I, I went, looked at some sources. Uh, I found an article over at the vegan RD. Jenny actually writes the vegan RD. Jenny, she actually writes, She's written about this a few times, but I'm going to post a link to an article said, do some people need to eat meat? And she talks about some of the stuff we've been talking about here and essentially says that, you know, she hasn't found a case where that is actually like what is happening, that someone absolutely must eat meat or eggs or dairy or whatever it might be to survive, but then acknowledges all these caveats of like some people, it is a lot harder for them to be vegan. And so I don't think that we should ignore those things. But then there's also this other side to this, Paul, where I'm like, you know, who told this person that they can't be vegan? Was it a doctor that has little to no nutritional training or is it, or is it also wrapped up with like, they just are dealing with again, the baggage that the whole population deals with where they just don't want to be vegan. And so they haven't really tried to be vegan because they 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 think this is their sort of scapegoat for it. 
I don't know. But again, I think that it comes down to if someone has all of these issues, like if, if the food that they can eat is so whittled down to a few things, maybe it's time to move on to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think that someone that's, if someone was allergic to soy and wheat that, and they weren't vegan and, and off the bat, they didn't have any intention of being vegan, but you were trying to advocate to this person. I think it would be, it would, if I was that person in that situation, I wouldn't want it. Like, who are you to tell me to do something that's going to make my life, my already inconvenient life, even more inconvenient type of type of thing. So I, I told like, I get why there would be backlash from those people. I do think that sometimes people who don't have, who aren't in these situations will use people in those situations to kind of say, well, would you tell this person to be vegan? If someone's allergic to soy, would you tell that person to be vegan? And they kind of use them as a scapegoat to sort of uh, like take the, take the, the pressure off of themselves and say, well, if, if you're not going to tell that person to go vegan, then I'm not going to go vegan either, or I'm not going to try it either. I'm not going to, I'm going to dismiss everything you say. And then the last thing I wanted to say in defense, again, of people who, who are going through these conditions, because what you said, Andy, I I think is absolutely true that most of the, the doctors that are treating these people probably themselves are not vegan. So because of that, that's not really going to be on their radar or they're not going to have any particular reason to promote a vegan diet, especially if they haven't had a lot of nutritional training and, I think I can be sympathetic for the patients of those, those doctors, because one, how are they going to know that going to a different doctor is going to lead to a different diagnosis, something like that? Or like, how are they going to know that going like, Oh, I'm not vegan, but I should go to a vegan doctor about this problem. Like I, I think for most people, there would be no reason why they would think to do that. And then also if, if you are trying to promote being vegan to someone and you bring up that point, I think it's, it, it's inaccessible or very inconvenient for someone to just go to a bunch of different doctors or to try to find a specifically vegan or vegetarian doctor. So I think that, like you said, Andy, I think that there are, are plenty of other people that we could be advocating to and I would not get hung up on, on someone in, the, in that sort of situation. Yeah, and you know, Alternately, if someone is in that situation and they genuinely really want to go vegan, like I think it's totally appropriate to sort of help them, point them towards resources. Oh, here's someone that is vegan with Crohn's or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. It's totally appropriate to to do that. But unless it's someone that's like really, really, really wants to, uh, yeah, I think our, our resources, our time and efforts are better spent elsewhere. Agreed. So, Andy, I think we're digging around the bottom of the mailbag. Yeah, there's just two two letters hanging out in the, the bottom of them. Here's One of them's a statement, but this is the last question. So here's our final question. This comes to us from Carmen P., who is the one that emailed in that lovely question about whether vegans should be concerned with human population control, human population growth or not. And Carmen wrote a follow-up email to us with another question, which I think would be a nice way to rant it out this episode. So Carmen P. writes in, is there an altruistic way to bring a child into this world in this day and age for the child themselves? 
I know that some people are surrogates and they have children for other people, but what are reasons to bring a child into this world for the child? Does this make sense? My own reason would be for the experience I would get to have as a female, but I feel that reason is solely for me and therefore is self-indulgent. And because of that, I'm not sure that I will procreate. In my small bubble and very limited experience, the most reasons why I hear other people have kids is for that same reason, as well as, quote, you are not complete until you have kids. You need someone to pass your genes to, bloodline, or who's going to take care of you when you get older, among others, which, again, all seem like selfish, for lack of a better word, reasons. Yeah, this is a really interesting question, Paul. I think that the episode Should Vegans Advocate for Human Population Control, which was episode 106 for anyone that wants to go back if they missed it, we were kind of talking about like for the the planet or for the animals that will be affected if if it's like a good thing to do but i i don't think we ever really talked about like is it is there a good reason for a human being to brought be to be brought into this world for their for their own sake which i, I think is essentially a question of is is non-existence preferable to existence but it's almost like is the 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 pain and horror of existing as a human on this planet is that outweighed by the joy that someone could experience on this planet or is it is it just like a cruel thing to bring a human into this world go <laughs> i think that this is a this is a deeply philosophic discuss like topic to discuss so i I don't know how well I'm going to be doing with this, Andy, but <laughs> I believe I, I, in you, Paul. Thank you. I, my, my original thoughts, my original thought was just kind of like you, there's no way that you can bring a child into the world and know for a hundred percent certainty that they are going to have the best, most joyous life or that they're going to have the worst, most awful life. So it's it's always going to be like there. I don't think you can make the argument that oh well, I'm going to bring a child into this world because they're going to be happy and and that's that's a good thing to ha- to 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 create a happy being. But at the same time, like I was saying, I don't think you could go the other way as well. And because if no one had children the human population would just become zero after a hundred or so years. I believe, and I think my esteemed colleague across the computer might (laughs) disagree with me, but I believe that, that humans, I, I I don't want to say should, but I believe that humans have the right to continue their existence. And because of that, you know, someone's going to have babies. Yeah, but that's not necessarily the question, though. But the question is, is there any reason for the child themselves? Yeah. Like, I think you could say, oh, well, there's so much wonder in the world for them to experience. And and maybe you could even go so far as to say, like, the heartache they'll experience from their first love lost is is still, you know, the thrill of experiencing those emotions is still worth the pain of existence or whatever it might be. <laughs> You took know? something really took something really high and then made it real low at the end. There. <laughs> the well, I mean, of like, existence. I mean, the the first time someone has like a major heartache or a breakup or whatever it might be, like that. Honestly, I feel like that's one of the most devastating things for a person to experience. And I'll never love again, and all this stuff that people <laughs> that people go through. 
uh, and then you become like an old jaded curmudgeon <laughs> at some point <laughs> with a hardened shell. But but uh, yeah, I, I guess I feel like I can straight out say that to the question, I don't think there's any altruistic reason for the benefit of the child that I could think of that would be worth bringing someone into this world. Could you say the the potential but but again like you said that goes on both sides there's also the potential of a horrible existence and a painful death but i i think if you don't do it then then you'll never know one way or the other yeah you'll miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take etc <laughs> wayne gretzky michael scott <laughs> <laughs> but i i i guess i just don't think that that's preferable to just not existing at all Hmm. Well, we're not talking about us not existing. You're, we're talking about like creating another. Yeah, being. this is this is a being that would have no idea what they're missing out on if it was to be great, and therefore I feel like it's a like a net negative. It's like a negative. It's or it's like a zero. It's a zero yeah, sum game. Neutral. Yeah. I don't know. I want to argue against you, Andy, but I can't think of anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> and and given the impact that they're likely to have on the planet. It, it just seems like there's a lot of great reasons to not. But again, no shade at people who do, you know, like it's just one of those things like for me, these are my these are my reasons why I wouldn't have a child. But I don't want like I don't want humanity to go extinct. Why not, Paul? Because I, I because I think the, the potential that people have to help others and make others happy. Not everyone's going to grow up to be Andrew W.K. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I this 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 discussion makes me wish that I was religious so that I could just say like, oh, it's because of this thing, and that's why, and I don't have to <laughs> I don't have to think about it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I, I to again to Carmen's question. I can't think of a good response to that. I can't think of a good reason that's altruistic enough to bring a child into this world. That's just, that's just my personal feeling. And again, that's tainted by my own lack of drive to ever have a child. And and so I recognize that. I don't know what to say, Andy. (laughs) I I think we could just leave it there again. would love to hear what, what the listeners have to say about this or any other question that we talked about this week, send us in your new questions for the next mailbag. You send those into the bearded vegans at gmail.com. Don't forget to leave us an iTunes rating and review must do the review. Can't just be a rating in order to be entered. If you just rate, we won't know what your name is, so we can't possibly pick you. They they talked a lot about babies, not existing (laughs) five stars. (laughs) (laughs) As a baby, I'm offended. (laughs) One star. (laughs) I am the baby. And thank you to everyone that did send in emails. Again, we're working on getting to everyone. We certainly read everything. We we really appreciate it. I think we marvel on this at every episode, but I'm like, "Ah, I can't believe so many people send us emails. Yeah. And care care what us two totally non-professional guys, (laughs) non-experts have to say about this stuff. So uh, we definitely appreciate it. Thank you to everyone that, that keeps us going. Yes, thank you. And again, this is our last kind of i mean this is this this is in itself an atypical episode but this is our last standard episode and we'll be doing the live episode and then a bunch of retro movie reviews for the next few weeks so i hope that you look forward to those and enjoy them 
Yeah. So I, with this is like, I, I don't know, maybe we'll say something about it in the live episode. Probably not. So this is our final sign off and uh, you won't, you won't hear f- uh, us commenting on current events until February of 2018. Whew. So Andy, what do you got coming up? Oh, this coming weekend, we got a little double header. Paul, we're, we're splitting up the team. Paul, you're going to be at the Philly Vegan Pop Flea at the Tattooed Mom in Philadelphia. And then also on December 17th, I'm going to be at the Vegan Pop-Up presented by the New Jersey Veg Fest at the Morristown, New Jersey Laundromat Bar, which is a really Ooh. fun venue. And that's, that's going to wrap it up. I'm not even going to talk about my events for 2018, but you can head over to CompassionCo.com to get all those dates, deets, and links. And if you want to order yourself a shirt, use the code BEARDO to save yourself 15% off. Nice. Paul, I mentioned how there was two letters left in the bag, and one was a question and one was a statement. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, um, I'm, op- I'm opening it up. <laughs> Ripping it's, it. <laughs> it's weird because... It, it's like one of those old style, like trying to get money out of people, blackmail thing. It's like letters cut out of a newspaper and like really sloppily pasted on there. <laughs> I'm trying. It's like almost hard to decipher what it says, but I think hold it, hold it up to the camera. Let Andy. me hold it up to the let me hold it up to you. And I think it says the following seven words: We are the bearded vegans signing off. So the next one's coming to us from Ralph W.P. Chips. Is that is that how you would read that? Is that from the uh, W.P. Chippington Empire? I don't know what that is. That was a joke. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the tires still have... <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> Getting choked you... up about this. God, just... Uh, these leather interiors, Paul. <laughs> Just just think about all of the technological advances we've made in the relative recently recent past and recently recent re- relative. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I guess technically I can read it and it won't matter. Yeah. All right. God, that's so loud. <laughs> so loud. Do you think listeners ever get sick of hearing bloopers that are just us waiting for cars to pass? Or dogs. <laughs> or dogs. I think they're funny. Uh, <laughs> motorcycle. Motorcycle. <laughs> car. <laughs> right. Oh, now there's two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> they're just like backing up into each other. <laughs> You go. No, you go.